we often go through our life assigning value to various things. You know, one of the areas that we assign value to is our time. Sometimes people are like, well, I normally make this amount of money, therefore each hour of my time is worth this. And so when they think about doing perhaps things like changing the car oil, they think, hmm, I think my time is valuable and I should change the car oil myself, right? Or they think, I, I want to change these cabinets out. I want to redo this kitchen. I want to get some wood and work on and build this furniture. I want to fix the toaster because it's broken. My time has value and I can create value with my time. Other times, people are like, my time is more valuable than fixing the toaster, so I'll just go buy a new one. My time is more valuable than, than spending however long changing the oil or, or doing cabinetry or so on, maybe because we can't do it as well as someone else could, right? We assign value to our time. It's what artists do when they go and they try to, to sell a piece. They know that there was value on their time thinking about what they were painting or thinking about blowing glass and creating something that wasn't before. Value on time. We love finding value. I think that's why there was this thing called Black Friday when people got so excited to go get up early and find a good deal. We love value when we go into a thrift store shop to find something that we were looking for at a better price just because it spent some time in someone else's home. We like finding value so when it's time to purchase a car, we'll we'll dedicatedly search each different uh, uh, car dealer or on Craigslist or whatever place we want to choose to find what we're looking for at a good price. Sometimes the value that we find legitimately has intrinsic value. The the wedding ring that you have has a value based on the diamond. The things you have perhaps in your home have a specific value based on what they're made of. Other times, though, the value can be a little bit more sentimental. Where the actual value of the item does not match the worth that you give to that item. If you've ever seen a show called American Pickers, perhaps you've seen how people are able to give a higher value based on sentiment than what something is actually worth. These these two guys, Mike Wolf and Frank Fritz, go through... um, Layers upon layers of dust and dirt and things that are 
in barns, in, in attics, and in garages. Sometimes they go into well-kept homes. But they go into these places searching, searching for items of Americana, things that perhaps they could restore and give value to, to sell to others so that they would have some joy in these things that are lying outside in the snow or lying with layers of dirt and dust all over. The show usually goes about where they, they give prices back and forth and then they agree on something and they shake hands. I don't know if they're doing that right now with COVID or anything like that, but they shake hands on the agreed price. But other times something happens and they are unable to come up with a sale. It's because the person has a higher sentimental value for the item than one, it, what it's actually worth. It's because, well, that car was owned by my grandfather and I, I just can't part with it because one day I'm going to restore it myself. And, and Frank and Mike are still interested, so they say, what's your crazy price? What's your, what's your crazy price? What's the, the numerical value that you would put on this thing that would cause it to be so crazy that we wouldn't even really want to buy it? And sometimes, though, people can't even come up with a crazy price. Perhaps because they're worried that that crazy price might be something they're willing to pay. So Frank and Mike will go on without that item. Maybe you have some items like that in, in your house. I don't know if I have an item that's of much value, but it's traveled with Emily and I as we moved from uh, Michigan here after college to Wisconsin, and then it traveled to Colorado with us, and then when we made a brief pit stop in Iowa, it traveled there, and it made its way into our, our home here back in Kentwood. It's a table. It's a, a little table that's got four chairs, and, and maybe the top is maybe a little bit bigger than this, but it's got sides that fold down, and you can put them up. It's actually not that great of a table. Uh, the legs, I think, are wood. There's a piece of trim that kind of comes around the bottom that's made out of wood, but I'm pretty sure the top is actually veneer, and so is the sides. But it travels with me because it's a reminder of the times I'd go over to my grandmother's apartment and we'd sit and eat lunch together. It's a a reminder, God, I'm getting emotional all of a sudden. Uh, it's a reminder of sitting there and playing card games with grandma. Racco. I don't even know if we have this game in our house. I see some people nodding. It's a reminder, something that its sentimental worth is far, far greater than what it is actually worth to someone else. A crazy sentimental value, you could probably say. Maybe that just gives just a little bit of a picture into maybe what Jesus was trying to explain to us today using those three, we're going to look at three short verses in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. It's the crazy value 
of the kingdom. Would you pull those up, please? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Perhaps we wonder, what is the kingdom? Sometimes we have a kingdom in our mind and we think, well, the kingdom is when Jesus returns and everything in restore, is restored. It's that thing that's in the future that we're, we're just waiting for. We're, we just got to slog through this life first and then we'll get there. But that's not quite it. Because the reality of it, and it was said in the story that we just read earlier, is that God's kingdom is present wherever His rule and His reign is. And when Jesus came back 2,000 some years ago, He inaugurated a new portion of God's kingdom, announcing the reign of God over all by way of Jesus Himself started with Jesus coming to earth. If you've ever heard of this thing called the Heidelberg Catechism, this teaching tool that, that we often use in our denomination to, to learn how to succinctly and in, in small ways understand what God's doing in Scripture, it says this about the kingdom. And this is more of a paraphrase than anything. God's kingdom being now means that we desire God to rule us by His Word and Spirit where we are used to preserve His church and make it grow. It is a kingdom that destroys the devil's work, the forces which revolt against God's Word. The kingdom causes us to realize He is our all. The kingdom causes us to realize that He is our all. If we would summarize those words even more succinctly, the kingdom is God's saving and redeeming reign. It's something that He came to do and came to see through that will one day ultimately be a restoration of the whole world. It's God bringing joy, salvation, righteousness, and peace into the lives of His people. I think through this morning, we'll see that when we realize that God is our all, we will joyfully give all to follow Him. This first uh, small one-verse parable, we find a, a man is digging in the ground in land he doesn't own, mind you, and all of a sudden, in this land he doesn't own, it, yeah, there's that clink, and he finds this treasure. If you saw the pictures of it, uh, there actually there was a picture of, I think he had the treasure out of the ground. There's a lot of belief that he probably didn't even take it out of the ground. You see it right there in the bottom corner. 
because if he took it out of the ground, he might have been a servant or someone who of the land, right? And then therefore, if he would have taken this thing out of the land, it would have belonged to the owner of the land rather than him being able to go buy it. Anyway, that's a freebie for today. But he probably didn't pull it out, but he saw it and he saw it was of great value. And so what he did is he went and he sold everything he had, every single possession, all of it. So he could go and find the most surest way of procuring whatever that treasure was, and that was buying the field. Because what he saw was he realized whatever that treasure was, was really his all. Therefore, he was willing to give up all of the rest of his things to have that one treasure. It might sound odd to us burying treasure in the ground. Other than perhaps hearing stories of buried treasure, maybe you watch uh, The Curse of Oak Island or some show like that where it talks about some buried treasure being somewhere and people are going to do what they can to search for it. There's largely a disconnect other than that. You know, maybe you've heard of people who, who stuff their treasure in, you know, their mattresses, money in mattresses, or, or, or maybe they, like, take down some drywall in their house and stash things behind the drywall and put it back up. That way it's hidden. We're not talking about safety deposit boxes at the bank here, right? Well, it was actually more common then than maybe we realize the surest way of keeping goods safe was for one person who knew the value of those items to, to dig up a spot and put it in there. They would do this whenever there was warring or whenever there was this impending attack from other people because then if they buried their items, if they buried their valuables, then the soldiers who would come in, the people who would attack their nation, they wouldn't be able to carry away their goods. They would be able to leave and, 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 and travel perhaps as a prisoner of war to this new land. And then when, when it would all be over, hopefully they would be able to come back, remember where that spot was that they buried the treasure, and then they would continue to have their wealth and valuables. Now as you can imagine, there's a problem what happens if while in this other land you never make it back there or that individual dies in battle the treasure's lost but the man finds it and finds great worth he sees it as a value and he sells everything realizing that treasure is his all Therefore, he sells all to possess the treasure. In the second story, there's, there's similarity, but just this little bit of twist. The first story, the man was, was just digging in the ground and he just happened to find a treasure. Now, in the next story, you have a merchant who is diligently searching. He is diligently searching for a pearl of great value, and when he finds it, he does the exact same thing as this other man did. He went 
off and joyfully sold everything he had to have possession of this treasure. He wasn't thinking about perhaps, wow, I can sell this for so much more as a merchant. But instead, he found great joy in the item itself. Because when you realize God is your all, you joyfully give all to follow Him. No cost is too great. And notice, as you look at verse 44, which I don't have on the screen, if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 44. The person says they joyfully gave up everything. He doesn't see it as a sacrifice to give up all in order to get this one treasure. But instead, there's an act of joyful obedience, perhaps, in, in following in this way. Because when you realize God is your all, no cost is too great to be a part and to, uh, to continue to be a part of the, uh, the kingdom. The kingdom that is a kingdom that spiritually and socially and emotionally and physically restores people. No cost is too great. When God is your all, you're willing to give all. And so the man and the merchant sold all to grasp that representation of the kingdom. They experienced a delight, a joyful exuberance perhaps, when they finally had possession of the kingdom, the pearl, the treasure. Now, I want to say, you, don't, you can't buy your way into the kingdom. We'll just put that out there. You can't pay a price to receive the kingdom because Jesus already paid that. We'll get to that a little bit later. But when you look at what happened in these stories, what you realize is that joy is the game changer. The joyful life that they had is what caused change in the people's life. The willingness to give up of what you have. And therefore, it's, so, it's the joy in experiencing Christ's salvation in our life that will cause us to change and to live differently. Just having a list of rules isn't going to do it. A joy of experiencing the value and the worth of Christ is what does it. Because when you realize that God is your all, you're willing to give up all to follow Him. Joy causes us to be able to alter our current life experience for what God has in store for us instead. I think the problem, though, comes sometimes we just don't want to sell. Sometimes we just don't want to give up all. It's like we're those people on American Pickers that have that crazy high value in that one thing in their life that they can't see their life without that one thing. 
and so they don't want to sell. But something interesting happens, too, in those shows. Maybe they start out not wanting to sell, but then they start realizing the joy that will happen after the fact. The joy, perhaps, that Mike and Frank have for whatever this item is, that they're going to restore it and give it, uh, uh, freshen it up and give it to someone else who's going to love it just as much as they did. And when that joy comes into that person's life, then they're willing to have a life change, to give up that one thing that they never thought they were going to give up before. Now in our lives, I wonder if there's things that we don't want to sell. Largely, it's probably not a table this size with, you know, wings that come up. But are there things in your life that you just don't want to give up? That you're not willing to give all? Maybe it's the trash food that you eat on Sunday afternoon. Maybe it's the shows that you watch that don't necessarily honor God, the ones that you maybe don't want to tell other people that you're watching. Maybe it's the thing that is in your mind instead that you you don't want to give up worrying about what people think of you and how they're going to respond to how you talk. Or maybe it's you don't want to do the, the hard work to learn how to talk to people nicely. To talk to people respectfully. Giving up all because we know God is all. And I stand up here talking about it, but it's not easy, is it? I I read news stories this past week about Ravi Zacharias. And, and, And people knew him as a great minister, someone who pointed to God, someone who who brought God's message to others, and yet even Ravi Zacharias, knowing God was his all, was unable to give up all. He was unable to give up aspects of his life, keeping them from God, or at least attempting to. He preached about it and developed a ministry to reach out, but he wasn't able to give up all. I wonder what that all is in our own life. The thing that we keep hidden, tucked away in the closet. Not not sure how we can give up all. Remember this, Jesus paid all. Jesus paid for it all so you could realize that God is your all and none of this matters. All of this other stuff that's happening in your life, all of these things that you could give up are inconsequential to who God is and what He offers to us. It's a beautiful thing when we choose to give up all and realize that God is our all in all. We realize that joy comes into our life by aligning ourselves with God, His mercy and grace and justice. His care for the oppressed. His care for you and for me, for our physical needs, for our spiritual needs, for our emotional needs, all of those things. 
when we truly realize that joy that comes in the form of, of salvation and righteousness and forgiveness and justice and in the peace that's a part of God's kingdom, then we can freely and joyfully give up those things. Knowing that that junk food or that vindictive spirit or that anger or that frustration that we keep holding on to can just be given over to Him. And then God helps us realize who He is more and more and more as we walk with Him. Because when we realize God is our all, we joyfully give all to follow him. Would you join me in a life like that? Where we acknowledge God as our all and are willing to give up joyfully everything that's in our life to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Primarily, we thank you, Lord, for, for how your word is words of grace and of love. Words that show us that, that you are our all, and that you even, by way of Jesus, gave up all so that you could become ours. So that you could restore our hearts back reoriented to you, and one day, restore the entire world to be oriented to you as well. Lord, we pray that you would help us by way of your Spirit realize that you are our all in all. By your Spirit, cause us to bring about those realities with all that we see, each person that we interact with. Help our words and actions speak loud that you are everything to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.